listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. And uh, I serve on the board here as a trustee. Today I'll be reading Luke 19, 11 through 27. As he heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they, because they supposed the kingdom of God to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into the far country to receive himself a kingdom and, ret- and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him, and he sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered his servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that they might know what they have gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minutes more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you, you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I had kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you do not deposit, you reap what you do not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? He said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one that has ten minas. And he said to them, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, Bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Some of the best preachers that I've ever heard, and maybe will ever preach, often end their sermon, often end their time with a great story that will illustrate the point they had been trying to make. Um, That means I'm not one of those great preachers because I don't very often do that. But uh, I can think of no better preacher than the Lord himself. And what we have here is a concluding story. As Luke has been laying out this portrait, if you will, of Jesus, Messiah, as he's gathered information from those that had seen him, those that had heard him with their own ears, And he had gathered those historical facts and codified them together in what we know as the Gospel of Luke, which we also know that the second volume is called the the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. That's volume two, by the way. In this first volume, the Gospel of Luke, Luke is painting a picture of the one we know as Jesus. We see him from from his birth narrative to uh, his early life, to his early ministry in Galilee. And then in this very large section in the middle of the gospel, we see this journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. Jesus had set his sights on Jerusalem, and he had told his disciples, we've got to go there because that's where I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be crucified. But on the third day, I'm going to rise again. And so Luke gives us these scenes of instruction and opposition 
And Jesus encountering those who may have been somewhere in the middle of those that were followers and those that were opposers. And we, of course, know that Jesus was back and forth in in his travels to Galilee, to Judea, to the east side of the Jordan, to the uppermost part above Galilee. But in Luke's gospel, he puts these things together in a in a uh, scene for us, and he gives us the, the journey narrative. So in Luke's account, we're coming to the end of Jesus' journey from Galilee to the place where he will ultimately pay for our sin on the cross, be crucified in our place for our sin, be buried because the Romans did what the Romans do. They executed men fully and completely. He was laid in a tomb, and we know that as uh, we celebrated just a few weeks back, and, and that we celebrate every week when we come on the first day of the week, that, that Jesus rose from the dead, and he's alive today, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father, waiting on the command to return and to get his bride. But as we come to this center section of Luke's gospel, Jesus tells a parable. And he sums up everything that he's been teaching, and he gives them instruction on what is to come. Not only for himself, but for those that would be called his followers. In the immediate context, we've just seen Jesus encounter a rich man who wanted to know what he needed to do in order to obtain eternal life. Jesus basically told him, you can't do anything to obtain eternal life. But you can move all of your distractions out of the way and follow me. But because this man was very rich... That was a price too high for him to pay. And so he walked away sad because he had much riches. And then we see Jesus encounter a man who could not see and was a beggar and had no help, no hope in and of himself. But somewhere along the way, he had come to believe that this one Jesus from Nazareth could very well be the son of David, the one who was to come, Messiah, king, and establish that throne forever and ever. And so he began to cry out with all his might, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And that's exactly what the son of David, Messiah, did for this man. He had mercy on him. He asked, what can I do for you? The man says, only that I could see. Jesus says, sounds good to me. That's not exactly what he said, but he said, recover your sight. And immediately that man was able to see the face of the one that he had already believed in. And he himself began immediately to follow the Savior. Then on the heels of that, on the inside of the city of Jericho, we we saw last week how that Jesus encountered another rich man. A hated rich man. In fact, potentially public enemy number one. Because he was not only a tax collector, he was the regional manager of tax collectors. This guy would have been skimming off the top of the guys skimming off the top of their own people before they sent the money to Rome. This was a hated, detested individual named Zacchaeus. And we learned that he was a wee little man. We're not going to sing again today. It's okay. It's Mother's Day. We're going to save the mothers the agony of listening to us sing. But that wee little man was interested in knowing who this Jesus was. So he climbed up in the tree so that he could see because he was wee. And, and, and the folks weren't going to let him in the crowd. I mean, I can only imagine what was happening to him trying to make his way in the crowd as folks recognized who he was and was likely jabbing him in the stomach and and kicking him in the back as he's moving through the crowd. So he knew the crowd was not where he needed to be. So he climbed up to a place that he could see over the crowds. And when Jesus came to him, Jesus looks at this guy and says, get down, son, I'm going to your house and it's going to be an exciting time. And an exciting time it was. Jesus goes to his house and and shares the good news with him. This man, Zacchaeus, is radically and, and unbelievably saved and transformed. Not only does he receive the information that Jesus is Messiah. You said it says that right there in Luke 19? No, doesn't tell us at all what Jesus told him. Doesn't say at all what he said and how Zacchaeus responded. But here's what I know what happened. As a result of the experience that Zacchaeus had with Jesus, 
the man says, I'm paying back everyone I've cheated and the list must have been long. And I'm not only going to give them their money back, I'm giving them four times what I stole from them and anything I have left, I'm going to cut it right down the middle and I'm going to give it to the poor. Financial ruin. Why would this man risk utter financial ruin because he had found somebody that was worth far more to him than any amount of corrupt riches could ever provide. It reminds me of that story that Jesus told about the guy who found a pearl of great price in a field worth so much he was willing to sell his all in order to purchase that. Zacchaeus sold it all in order to embrace the one who owns it all. I think Luke probably identified Zacchaeus because probably Zacchaeus went from being public enemy number one to another one of those figures likely like Paul who was once hated but now had become a prominent figure in the church and Luke didn't want anybody to miss it. But that's just what I think. That's not what I know. I didn't even intend to tell you all that. But Jesus comes to this conclusion now, nearing Jerusalem, knowing his time is at hand. And those that were around, very likely at the banquet that Zacchaeus had thrown for Jesus, he began to tell a story about a nobleman, one of noble birth, who had servants and who was in authority over citizens. This nobleman needed to take a trip, and it was going to be a long trip because it was a far journey. But at the end of that journey, he would receive for himself a kingdom. Now, that would have been very common in the minds of the Jewish listeners. Say, why is that? Because they knew not too long ago in their own history, a man that they had heard about by the name of Herod the Great had actually left the region of Judea and had gone to the place in Rome in in, in order to receive for himself the authority over the region of Palestine. Caesar had granted Herod the, the ability to rule in his stead and to watch over his his uh, land, his uh, the, the place that he occupied there in Palestine. And then it happened again at the death of Herod the Great when his son went and stood before the Senate in Rome and they conferred on him the kingdom. And so when he returned, he found himself a throne to sit upon because he had been given authority to rule in that place. So it would have been a very common thing for the Jewish listeners to understand what going away to be given a kingdom and then returning to rule in that kingdom was very light. Jesus said this noble man went away on a far journey to receive himself for a kingdom. While he was gone, however, he called his servants and he divvied out to them an amount of money. Money that was his own, money that they had not earned. It was not their property, but they were being given the opportunity to steward over to to manage the funds of the nobleman. He hands out this amount of money. Scripture calls it a mina, a mina. It's it's an amount of money equal to about a hundred drachma. You say, fantastic, what's that? Well, a drachma would have been a silver coin that would have been a day laborer's wage. So about a hundred days wage, about three months and a quarter in salary. He hands this amount of money out and he says, I want you to, in King James form, occupy till I return. I want you to engage in business. I'm not asking you to be an entrepreneur and go out and make your own business. I'm asking you to engage in my business. I want you to continue what what I do and I want you to do it while I'm gone. And when I return and I'm going to return, I'm going to to return. When I return, we'll settle up. The man goes away, and while he's gone, his citizens decide that they never wanted him as their king anyway. The citizens of this land, not the servants, 
the citizens, those that he had authority over, decided that they didn't want him to be their king. We reject him, will not be ruled by him. Kind of reminds me of the 90s movie, the Robin Hood, the Kevin Costner version of Robin Hood. You know, Robin is gone and he's kind of like, uh, uh, you know, he's going to be the hero. But, but the king goes away. The king, what was he? The Lionheart. What, what was his name? You don't remember. Chad, come on. You ought to know. Anyway, King Richard, the Lionheart, was gone. Who stepped into his place? The sheriff of Nottingham says, will not be ruled And so he takes up and he rejects King Richard while he's gone. Well, that's what these citizens do. They reject the leadership, will not be ruled till the king returns with his authority, with his paperwork, with everything in order to set accounts straight. And that's what he does. He sets accounts straight. He deals with his enemies. What what was Jesus doing here? He was showing his followers, through story form like only he could do, what they would do in the meantime while he's gone. Verse number 11, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear Immediately. Those throngs of people that were crowding around here were assuming that Jesus would enter Jerusalem with great fanfare, would ascend up probably to the temple, declare himself to be Messiah, rally those that would be at arms and those of the heavenly host that we we know he has at his control and overthrow Rome and set up the new government that God had promised through the prophets, through the teachings that they had heard in the Psalms. Surely this one is to set up the kingdom really soon. But Jesus tells a story about the fulfillment of a kingdom that's going to be delayed. A kingdom that's not going to come immediately in its experience, but it certainly is going to be identified through his work. We see first the nobleman, his journey, and his subjects. The nobleman, obviously Jesus, Messiah, who goes away on a long journey. What is this long journey? It's his death. His resurrection and his being with us for a little while, but then he goes away. And as they're watching him ascend, in volume number two, the first chapter, watching him ascend into heaven, those two stand on the hillside and say, all right, boys, what are you doing staring up in the sky? That same Jesus that went up, he's coming back. Now get down there and get busy. I know he told y'all some things to do. The long journey. How long is it going to be, Lord? Well, I can't tell you that. But I just know that I'm going to be gone a while. While I'm gone, I'm going to give you an opportunity to occupy, to engage in my business. That's what he does to the ten servants. Of course, we know that there's way more than ten. Millions and millions have trusted by faith in this nobleman, this king, this Messiah, this one named Jesus. The nobleman gives of his own resources to be utilized, to be engaged, to be accounted for when he returns. The resources, money, an opportunity to take of his and use for his glory. The citizens... Either the nation of Israel as a whole, or at least the religious authorities who had openly and boldly rejected him. They had hated him. They had seen him crucified. The nobleman, his journey, his subjects. But now we see the return and the ramifications. As Jesus said, the nobleman did indeed return. Think about John chapter 14 when he says, in my father's house are many rooms. 
weren't so, I would have told you, but I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will, come on class, come again. Come again? Yes, I'm going to come again. And I'm going to receive you to myself. So that where I am, there you will be also. And I think it was Philip, maybe, who, who asked the question that, that, that we all wonder, how, how are we going to know how to get there, Lord? And then Jesus responded to him, oh, you know the way. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But if you come through me, you're going to get to the Father because I'm the way. And I'll take you to be with me when I return. But until then, I want to draw your attention back to the parable. Until then, the servants were to engage. The servants were to be busy. I'm sure they knew his business. We don't have it here in the story. So we've got to assume that these servants knew their responsibilities. They knew what he did. They knew what needed to be done. They were simply to continue what he had done in their presence. They were to follow after what they had seen their master do. They were called to account when he returned, having received his kingdom, verse 15. He ordered these servants to whom he had given the money be called to him that he might know what they had gained By doing business, these servants were called to give an account of their faithfulness. It reminds me of of New Testament texts like Romans 14, 10 and 2 Corinthians 5, 10 that say, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Who is Paul talking about? He's talking about servants by faith, those of us who are followers of Jesus. We're all going to stand in front of the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he or she has done in the body, whether good or evil. I can tell you, I grew up in church thinking about this judgment seat and and worried about somebody somewhere said in in an illustrative type way I'm sure but I'm a little guy and I'm listening in and they said you know I can just imagine Jesus at this judgment seat throwing my life up on the big screen and when I heard that I immediately thought do what um that's not going to be appropriate for my mother okay I, I, I listen Some lies are going to come to light if you show that to everybody, you know. And that's kind of how we all think. Like, I'm not interested in everybody seeing all the grimy details of my life. Look, that was an illustration that has gone awry, but chances are great you've been plagued by it as well. Uh, That's not what's happening here. We're not being brought before the, the returned king in order to be embarrassed by him. The point is not for everyone to to gloat and laugh at the mistakes we've done. What we're gathered for is so that he might reward us for our faithfulness. What did the first one do? The first one came in verse 16 and said to him, Lord, you gave me one, I I made ten. You gave to me and I just did your business. I just did what you've given me to do and it multiplied. I've got ten and I'm just imagining... The nobleman going, yes, that's what I'm talking about. And you know, when, when, the, when the loudest clapper starts clapping, everybody else is like, oh, okay, we're clapping too. And I'm just imagining this eruption of claps and cheers in glory over the servant. No. In glory over what has been accomplished by faithful servants using what the master had given them for his glory and we're excited and you're in the middle going Heather they're clapping and I'm clapping and everybody's excited that's what I think the judgment seat of Christ is all about we hear judgment and we know it has a negative connotation but it also has the idea of just simply discovering what's here what we got here the second one comes to him and says, Lord, you, you gave me one. I gave, I, gave, I gave five by just putting it faithfully to work in your business, and it multiplied to five. 
I don't hear the nobleman saying, well, you know, you could have done a lot better because Larry did a lot better over here. And you, No, I hear him going, yes, excited. They're celebrating the faithfulness. Well, certainly the, the one who saw ten multiplied was rewarded in a greater way than the one who saw five multiplied. But, but I don't think we should walk away from that saying, well, that's not fair. I think we should walk away from that going, huh, if I give half effort, I can probably expect a half reward. If I give full effort, then I could probably expect a full reward. And at the end of the day, who's ultimately being glorified? The nobleman who owns it all, who's just given me an opportunity to be rewarded with more. The sadness comes with the third servant. The third servant comes with what he was given and a bag full of excuses. He's coming back. He knows that he's being called into account. He knew his master was returning. But what he shows up with is nothing of great value. Verse 20, another came saying, Lord, here's your mina. I kept it laid up away in a handkerchief. I made sure nothing happened to it. I folded it over and I put it right up under my bed where I knew it would because I knew you were returning. And the last thing I wanted to do was to have you show up and want your stuff back, me not to know where it was at. So I kept it really nice and safe. I kept it hidden. Not only that, I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you didn't deposit and you reap what you didn't sow. I had one author that I read behind say this guy was basically saying, I, I figured if I made some money, you, you'd take it. And if I lost your money, that you'd be wanting to get it back from me. So I just tried to make sure that it was safe. And the nobleman says, I'll condemn you with your own words. You know that I'm going to reap where I don't sow. You know that I'm going to, I'm going to have what, what may not be perceived as mine. Why then, verse 23, didn't you put my money in the bank? Why didn't you at least take some minor risks? I mean, you know, really, there were some things you could have done that, that would have not put you out all that much. And would have at least demonstrated that you were going to be obedient, wanted to be obedient, trusted that I was going to return and that you were safe in my care. I mean, you could have at least put it in the bank. And at my coming, I might have counted it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and Give it to the one who has ten. They said to him, Lord, he, he already has ten. I, and I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. I see this one disappointed. I see this one regretting that he didn't put it to work. But I don't see this one getting kicked out of the family. It kind of aligns up with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 11 to 15. Paul said, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. But now if everyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stone, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it'll be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Verse 14 says, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, the gold, silver, and precious stone, it's just judged as, as valuable, and he'll receive a, a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. You ever heard teacher say well you passed by the skin of your teeth you ever heard of that I heard that a lot so it's like yeah well 
You made it, but boy, you didn't have a lot to show for it. What Paul is saying is what Jesus was illustrating. The nobleman is going to go on a long journey. He has already departed some 2,000 years ago. After his death, resurrection, appearance, a little bit of instruction, and then ascension. I'll be back. And he's been gone. But he's coming back. He's going to return. That's the foundation on which we, his servants, his body in this life are building on. And the gold and the silver and the precious stones, it's it's just when we use what he has given us to continue his work, it multiplies. When we hide what he's given us, or we build with things that are purely and solely a matter of our own glory, of our own choosing and our own timing, according to our own convenience, well, then those things would be wood, hay, and stubble. And you put all those through the fire, one becomes more shiny, the other becomes no more. As we stand before the nobleman. What the nobleman doesn't need is more money. What the nobleman doesn't need is more stuff. What the noble wants is faithfulness. The nobleman wants to give of himself and to see his servants use what has been given to them for his glory, for the the promotion, the progress of the gospel, and for showing what it looks like to interact with Jesus even though Jesus is not physically present He is present within his servants. And then when he comes calling, and he's coming, he wants to celebrate. He wants to give out more rewards. He he wants to delight in his servants. The disappointment will only be because of our waste. And I don't think that's where any of us want to be. Reward, disappointment, it depends on faithfulness. And then we hear what he says about the enemies. But as for these enemies of mine, verse 27, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now, that's a hard thing to hear, is it not? That's hard to hear Jesus say that. Um, but that's what Jesus said. And I think it reminds me of a passage in, in Revelation. I know there's a lot of argument about how we read that. But, but chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, paints a scene for us where the dead are raised. Because their names are not found in the book of life, they are judged for what they had done in the body. And if you don't have your sin forgiven, then everything you do in the body is based on your sin. And we see those individuals, according to the Scripture, cast into the lake of fire. And, and that's not any more um, soft than what Jesus said about his enemies. You say, what's that mean? Well, I'll be right honest with you. Nobody really knows for 100% certain what all that's going to look like. Um, But what we do know is that Scripture consistently says that there is judgment on those who reject. And it's not what you want. Revelation is called the lake of fire. In Luke 19, it's called the slaughtering. We don't have to be that way, do we not? Can't we, like those who place their faith in Jesus, in opposition to those that were contrary to Christ, can't we know Him? A lot of times I ask the students on Wednesday night, are you a follower of Jesus? And I ask them, I ask them to be bold about it. I want them to answer it. Um, Maybe I ought to start doing that on Sunday mornings. Where I just say to y'all, um, are you a follower of Jesus today? Yes. See, I like, see Bill. I like that. He's not ashamed to say it. 
He's not ashamed to owe it. So own it. So are you a follower of Jesus today? Yes. Okay. If you're not a follower of Jesus, then I want to tell you I've got great news for you. Um, you're broken and you're um, hopeless in yourself. You're, you're helpless to be good enough to change your brokenness. You, you are absolutely incapable of making any adjustments to yourself. You won't be good enough to make God happy. You say, that's good news? <laughs> no, that's bad news. The good news is that God loves you in your brokenness. God sees you in your brokenness. God loves you and proves that he loves you in that while you were still a sinner, Jesus Christ put on flesh and died in your place for your sin so that you might be forgiven, you might be set free, you might be made right before God. That can only be received by faith in Jesus' finished work, his death in your place, his resurrection, in proof that God received that. And you too, by faith in Jesus and Jesus alone, you too can be one of his servants. If you're a follower of Jesus today, the takeaway is this. Engage in my business till I come. He's still gone. He's still coming back. Business needs to be handled. Business needs to be done. About three weeks ago, I shared this particular story with the elementary chapel at, uh, at Oasis Academy. I did it a little different, but my application is going to be absolutely the same because I figure if they can get it, so can we. We need, if we're followers of Jesus, to recognize that our nobleman has gone to receive his kingdom, a kingdom that has been inaugurated and, and, a, and an attitude that we can walk in. But that kingdom is not fully experienced until he comes back and established it, whatever that's all going to look like. Until then, we're to engage in his business. Until then, he has given us, not a pound and a quarter of silver, but he's given us all six things. Number one, he's given us all time. Every one of us have the same amount of time in each and every given day. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then that means you are his servant every second of every day. The time you have is something that has been given to you that can be used to engage in his business. It can be used in service. It can be used wisely and obediently, or it can be wasted. And I'm afraid that so many of us waste, waste, waste so much time. I'm at the front of the line. You know what I'm discovering? I turned 50 this year. I'm discovering, that, and of course my wife would tell you that I discovered this a couple years ago, but I'm discovering that if I get sit down in someplace comfortable, that I might start getting a little drowsy. And if my feet go up, it's over. It's over. Like I, can, I, can, I mean, I can sleep just like on demand, right? And I'm only 50. That's not supposed to happen now, right? But it's, it's happening. And you know what I can discover? Man, if I get sit down somewhere, I can sure waste about a good 45 minutes. Or I can be engaged. Now, I know there are times when, when rest is not waste. There are times when fun is not waste. We need that. We need balance. But how much time do we waste? How much time do we say we don't have to engage in the opportunities that we have to serve one another, to serve the community? Because we say, I just don't have time for that. I think our nobleman, our king, our Messiah, our Lord, I think he's going to ask us to give an account of our time. I think we want to find that we have utilized it for his glory. He's given us all abilities. Some of them are natural. They just, it just happens. It's kind of how we're wired, and we're good at it, and, and we enjoy it, and that's a, that's a gift that we've been given. But we've also, according to the New Testament, I hear been given gifts that aren't natural to us, that are uniquely connected to the Spirit that is resonant within us, that are to be used uniquely and specifically 
according to God's design for his glory, the building up of the body, the encouragement of one another, and the progress of the gospel. We've all been given by the Savior abilities to be used. The question is, are we using them for our own purposes, for our own glory, or are we using them to further his purpose and his glory? Do you realize that it's not just pastors and missionaries and Christian school teachers and, and mission directors and, and, and other vocational ministers that are to be in vocational full-time ministry. Do you realize that? Do you realize that full-time ministry looks like a printing press? It, it looks like an accountant. It, it looks like a general contractor. Full-time ministry looks like janitorial work. Full-time ministry looks like providing insurance for people. Full-time ministries, doctors and lawyers, cashiers. Full-time ministries are mothers raising their children to know the Lord. Full-time ministry is art, law enforcement, electricity, plumbing, even theater. It's full-time ministry. Why? Because they are abilities that have been given to us for God's glory. To, to reveal Christ to those that are hearing and seeing. To bring Him glory and to promote the gospel. We've all been given abilities. How will we use them while He's gone? He's given us all choices. Choices, things that will allow us the opportunity to take the wrong way. And can I just go ahead and, and let the cat out of the bag? We're all bent toward the wrong way. It's the sin that's still resident in our life. We're bent toward the choice comes. Is there, is there a wrong, wrong way? Because that's the way I feel like I need to go. Why? Because the sin that is still with us pulls us in that direction. But we have the opportunity, having been set free from our sin, no longer a slave to that sin, no longer having to take the wrong way, we have the freedom now to go, wait, 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 that, that's the way that I would normally go. Lord, which way do you want me to go? And he says, I want you to go this way. And how often are the choices that we make, if we're going to follow God's word, how often are those choices going to confuse everybody who's watching? It's not going to make sense to anyone because I'm not blowing up at the person who's just made me mad. I'm actually giving them more even though they took from me. I'm actually forgiving them even though they're not sorry. It's all kinds of crazy things that God asks us to do when we are faced with choices that we can use for his glory. Or we can follow our own fancy and let them be wood, hay, and stubble that burns up. But they're opportunities. They're things that he's given us to use. He's given us all opportunities. These are encounters that we face that we can intentionally, on purpose, represent Jesus. You say, well, isn't that the same thing as a choice? Might be, but seemed different to me. The opportunities that we're faced with to be silent, or to let our faith be known. To be uh, hidden or to let ourselves be vulnerable. These opportunities that come up when it hits me in the rear. I can either get mad about that and, and, and stew around. Or while we're waiting on the cop to show up, I can say, listen, I know this is kind of an awkward situation, but you know what? I love Jesus. Do you know him? I mean, they're captive. Where are they going, right? It's opportunity. You're upset. There's only one line in Walmart. And by golly, you're not using that self-checkout line. You're just not going to do it. I'm not going to do your job. Anyway, what, what an opportunity when the mama's crying. Or not mama. Mama's probably crying. Baby's crying. Mama's wondering. You're just like, well, I'll tell you what. You're doing a great job, mama. Jesus sure does love you. Do you know Jesus? You say, that's 
silly. That's weird. Yeah, it's opportunity. And so many of us get right by us and we don't even think about it. Why? Because we're not really thinking about using our life for God's glory. We're just thinking about the next thing that we've got to get to. We can engage in opportunities that we've been given in Christ's name or ignore them for our own convenience. He's given us all resources. Okay, he was going to get to money, wasn't he? Yes. He's given us all resources to use for his glory. Certainly, he gives us cash. He certainly wants us to use wisely and invest in the kingdom. But, but most of us have a place to lay our head. How, how are we using that place as an extension of God's hand and feet. Folks may need a, a place to, to land or a meal to share, an opportunity to be loved. We all have resources. How are we using them? Are we multiplying them for our own use? Or are we engaging them as a steward? And then lastly, he's given us all the gospel. Bottom line of what Jesus said to Zacchaeus, to those that were listening to him in the passage just before, Jesus says, I've come to seek and save those that were lost. That's why I'm here. I'm looking for and I'm looking to save those that are, that are irredeemable, those that are, that are unfixable. Those are the ones that I've come seeking to save. By the way, you're one of those. What's his business? Seeking and looking to see him save the lost. We've all got the gospel. If you are a follower of Jesus, then you have the information that most of the world needs, and that is that they are broken by sin. But because of God's love and the provision made by Christ, they can be forgiven. They can be made right with their Creator. They can have a new purpose for today and a brand new destiny for eternity if they'll only come by faith and faith alone. So let's just think about... The nobleman coming on Mother's Day 2022. It'd be a great day for him to show up, wouldn't it? And he calls us into account. That's awesome. I just wonder how excited we're going to be about the accounting. I think what Jesus is not wanting you to feel is this overwhelming guilt and shame as much as he wants you to feel this call to get up girl get up boy we got things to do i want to use you let's confess what sin needs to be confessed let's make right what needs to be made right but let's get up and go like we ain't got much time left i want to use you and i've given you all you need in order to bring me glory so think what our response today is i need to get busy if you're a follower of jesus why because he's given it to you to use. That's his calling. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, the only thing you need to do is realize salvation has been made available to you. And you can receive it today by faith if you will. And I hope you will. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Nobody's looking around. I always love special days because I know we're going to have visitors and, and folks that I've never met before. Hey, folks, I hadn't seen in a while, and that's always real fun to do. But on special days like this, it's, it's not the people that I'm used to seeing week after week. And so I want to make it very clear. If you're trusting it in anything, anything at all, to provide you um, wholeness, if you're seeking the answer to, isn't there something more to this life? If you're seeking the answer to that in anyone other than Jesus of Nazareth, crucified in your place and for your sin, well, then you're seeking down an empty hole that's not ever going to fill or not ever going to satisfy. But if you're willing to be vulnerable enough to say, I believe what that scripture says, that I'm broken by sin, but my Creator loves me still, and has, by His grace, made a way for me to be forgiven and set free. I believe that's in the person and work of Jesus. By His death and through His resurrection, I want to be forgiven. I want to be made right with God. I want to be saved. I want to be a part of His family. Then I believe it sounds a whole lot like 
God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I need to be forgiven, and I believe you've given us Jesus to make that way possible. I trust him today. Clean me. Make me yours. And I believe you can know him as your Lord and as your Savior, just like I do. Christian, what are we going to do with our resources? They're his, and they're to be used for his glory, and he's coming back. He wants to reward us for how we've used them. Let's get busy. While we wait, let's get busy. Let's be excited about it. Watch what he's going to do as a result. Father, we thank you for the day. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to be together and worship in freedom and confidence. Father, we thank you for the time that we've had to sing praises. We thank you for your word that is a double-edged sword that cuts in whatever direction it's swung in. God, we're thankful that your word cuts us deep because only then can we see ourselves as you see us. I pray today that we'll see ourselves, if we're followers of your son, as servants who have been gifted and then commissioned to be about his work till he returns. Help us to confess those things that are sin that have kept us from that and to step with our determined foot forward today to begin anew, representing your son because we're his. May you use us in whatever way you see fit for your glory. We love you. We trust you. We thank you. In the name of your son, our Savior, Jesus, Messiah, our King who is returning at any time. And all of the ways the church said, Amen.